It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Hi, listeners. First off, I apologize. Last week was the first one without a new podcast episode. I had a really busy time. I was organizing several conferences in Prospera and in Montenegro. We had the first conference combining new cities and the free cities movement with the network state. That is the meme that's coined by Volaji Srinivasan that's coming from the crypto and the tech space. And I feel like my work and my podcast has been working towards combining the two because the cities movement, they have very practical experience to build new jurisdictions. And there's a lot of talent, ideas, and capital and interest that is very innovative and very experimental and very fast moving that's coming from the crypto and the tech space and from the likes of Balaji Sinivasan. So I organized a conference in Montenegro that was in the pop-up city organized by Vitalik Buterin. I sat on a panel with Vitalik and with Mark Lutter. I was moderating a discussion with Balaji Srinivasan, which was a fantastic talk that he gave. I was really impressed by him. This week, I had the opportunity to finally interview one of my heroes, Eric Warhees. So this podcast episode is a recording from the Decentralizing Finance Summit in Prospera, where Eric was a guest virtually. So I'm really excited to share this podcast episode with you, and I hope it's compensating you for the last week that we were missing. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with Eric Warhees. All right, Eric Warhees, welcome to the Prospera Decentralizing Finance Summit in 2023. Thank you for being here. Hey, guys. So Eric Warhees is the founder of Shapeshift, the decentralized crypto exchange. Eric is one of the most important voices in the crypto movement, not least since he debated Sam Bankman-Fried 12 days before FTX collapsed, which was also a moment when he became a personal hero of mine. Eric has very clearly thought through ethics and principles, which we would like to talk about as a guide for what we're doing here at the summit. Now we're in one location, in one jurisdiction in Prospera, where we believe we can make a difference and work towards a more decentralized financial system. Eric, for anyone in the room who doesn't know you that well, can you give us a bit of a background about yourself 
And maybe you can do this by talking about your most defining moments in the crypto space. Most defining. Um, okay, well, hi, everyone. So I guess uh, the, the internet connection down there looks pretty good. So that's like a, a good prereq for building a little society, I'd say. So it's all coming through quite well on my end. Um, I've been in the Bitcoin world, the crypto world since mid-2011. And I uh, have seen it, you know, go from this little little community of cryptographers and hobbyists, you know, radical libertarians uh, to becoming, you know, a global force and um, to becoming something that everyone in the world at least knows the word Bitcoin now. And um, many people in all parts of society all around, all around the world are familiar with it. You know, tens of millions, maybe a hundred million people have used it and um, it's causing substantial changes already. So um, it's been a thrill and an honor to be, to be part of all that. And, um, let's see, I guess some momentous, uh, momentous times that I've lived through, I got involved right after Satoshi disappeared and, um, for, for a year, you know, people were just talking about how important was that? And was that like some devastating phenomenon and like, why, why would the leader of the project leave like that? And so that was a big debate. Um, I lived through a period of time when everyone was freaking out about the centralization of, of Bitcoin mining. You know, there were like two pools that controlled more than 50% of it. I lived through the, the Silk Road days and the takedown of Silk Road, at which point everyone wondered if Bitcoin would be over because the only thing it was ever used for was, was drugs. And it was very cool to see Bitcoin rebound after that and to go on to achieve all-time highs in the wake of Silk Road being taken down. I think it demonstrated to the world that this was something, uh, something bigger than any one app or any one project. Um, I'm probably the, probably the first one in the industry to get in trouble with the SEC, uh, for a crypto project. That makes me feel proud. Um, the SEC got mad at me for selling shares of my own company, um, a gambling site called Satoshi Dice back in 2012. They got mad because I didn't register the sale with them. Why they think I should register anything with them is an interesting point that I didn't want to register with them. And so I didn't, this was long before like tokens and ICOs and any of that. Um, but I've been, you know, I would say friends with them since for about 10 years or so. Um, I lived through the Mt. Gox calamity when that exchange blew up, you know, that was like 95% of all the Bitcoin trading back then. I'd say that was really the first demonstration of how important it was to build decentralized protocols and to not trust in central intermediaries. It's a lesson which unfortunately few people have learned. Um, people continue to leave their money with intermediaries. You know, we've had dozens of large exchanges and wallets blow up and billions of dollars of money get lost. Uh, the biggest of all, of course, was Sam Bankman fried and FTX last fall. Um, so those are just a, you know, just a few of the big, the big ones, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Eric, your tagline is towards peace markets and Bitcoin. Can you explicate a bit more what you mean by that and what you think is the goal vector of what you're working towards? Yeah. So I've had that tagline in my Twitter handle for at least 10 years. I think, uh, I like it because it's simple and it's actually kind of redundant. I think when you have peace, you have markets. And when you have markets, you have money based on 
markets versus governments. Each of those things exists in tandem with the others. Um, and I put them in that specific order because people know me for my role in Bitcoin, but what's more important to me than Bitcoin is really like certain principles. That's why I came into Bitcoin in the first place. And the most important principle in that regard is, is peace, meaning peace between individuals. A lot of people like to think of libertarians as like these cruel hearted uh, folks that don't care about poor people. It's fairly slanderous propaganda. I mean, all I care about really is that people respect each other as individual adults and don't violate each other's um, lives. Uh, so that makes me a peace advocate. And um, when you apply peace consistently, you get markets. And um, I think markets are where wealth comes from. It's, it's a beautiful demonstration of people trading and, and growing with each other and in a cooperative, nonviolent way. And, uh, and Bitcoin really is like a money of the market and it's meant for free trade between and among humans toward a, a goal of peace. So that's where that comes from. For anyone who's new to the topic, why should crypto replace fiat currency? In what ways is it significantly better or different? Uh, so should is an interesting word, right? Because there's sort of like a moral element to it. Um, so why should crypto replace fiat? Uh, because it's honest and it's objective um, versus dishonest and opaque and subjective. So maybe some people disagree with this statement, but I think one of the things that makes mathematics and language nice and useful is that it's not centrally controlled by anyone. Everyone in the world, regardless of your skin color, your nationality, your gender, your age, can interact with mathematics and it's the same rules. They don't change. Everyone can learn them. It's technical and difficult, but everyone can learn them and interact with them completely. And no one has control over mathematics. Same with language, right? You can learn whatever languages you want and speak freely with each other. Um, that's incredibly powerful. Money is arguably as important as mathematics and language. Certainly for most people, it's more important than mathematics. And yet money is centrally controlled. And when it's controlled, it is debased. Uh, it is used for the benefit of certain groups over others. Um, people do not all have equal access to fiat currency, right? Uh, some people have special rules. If, um, if I print dollars, I go to jail. If the local commercial bank prints dollars, they're fine. Why is that? They're just people, but they have this permission slip from the government that says that they can do something that I can earn, um, with, with a technology as important as money. So why should, why should cryptocurrency replace fiat? Because it's more ethical. It's more ethical for a whole world to have open access to, um, to something so important. And I would never say that people shouldn't be allowed to have fiat or to make fiat, you know, go for it. But, um, I think most free people will tend toward, uh, crypto when given the choice over the long term. So as you mentioned, you've been one of the first ones or the first ones that got into trouble with the SEC and at the crossfires of regulators and regular occurring political attacks on crypto. Where are we now? There's a banking crisis going on. There's something that Nick Carter dubbed Operation Choke Point. So it really seems like a moment where a lot is coming together. How does it compare to previous crisis situations or perilous situations for the crypto space? So yeah, I don't think there's any crisis. I think that word gets used far too often. Like real crises are few and far between in life, thankfully. 
early on in Bitcoin's history, we, we debated heavily, you know, to what degree governments would try to destroy it. And we'd argue about, you know, the, the technical structure of the Bitcoin blockchain and to what degree it could be taken out by a adversary of varying degrees of strength and intention. Um, and I was actually a little more worried, well, a lot more worried that the biggest threat or challenge that Bitcoin would face was, you know, essentially being blacklisted, destroyed, um, by, by various governments. And they in large part have not tried to do that. There's very few places where Bitcoin is banned entirely. It's largely treated as a weird financial asset and it's heavily regulated, uh, unfortunately, but there has not been severe animosity toward it yet. I think the reason that it wasn't as bad as many of us worried was because government agents, politicians have a great degree of hubris over their own money system. Like they do not realize what the actual threat of Bitcoin is. They, they see it as like, you know, maybe a tool that criminals use. Maybe it's a way for people to dodge taxes that they, um, quote, should be paying, but, uh, they don't really see it. They don't see its true nature, which is, uh, that it's an existential threat to fiat currency itself. And they don't see this both out of their own economic ignorance, but also largely out of their own hubris. And so, um. That's, that's good. It's good that they live in that kind of ignorance because it has allowed cryptocurrency to flourish and to grow and to become more and more normal. And, um, if it gets to a certain degree of norm normalcy, it will become harder and harder for governments to ban it. So this is all good. Um, you know, catching up in the present, certainly the temperature has been rising and certainly more governments in general and more departments within governments, more regulators, more specific politicians have taken an adversarial tone. Uh, to Bitcoin, you know, Elizabeth Warren is perhaps like the best example of this in the U S she's been completely explicit about it. And like one of her, um, campaign mottos now is that she's building an anti-crypto army to go back to that point I had earlier about peace, you know, like it's kind of obvious who's advocating peace and who's advocating violence here, right? Like she's not even trying to hide the fact that she would like to use coercion and violence to basically restrict the range of decisions, uh, otherwise free people should have. So, um, I think they're slowly waking up to Bitcoin being a, an existential threat to their financial system, but we have, we still have some time before they really get it. Hopefully they won't get it until it's too late for them. And maybe we're actually past that point already, but, um, I'd say the recent act activity is not so much a, uh, fundamental change that is, as it is just the gradient, you know continuing to move along. So which scenarios do you see as possible to, to play out? And I'm not asking for a prediction that's almost impossible, but rather how could it fail? So we have an idea how to mitigate the failure scenarios and how could we effectuate the most positive possible scenario where we're able to separate state and money? Yeah, I think uh, everyone that cares about this stuff should always acknowledge that it can fail. Right. Like most new things in the world fail. Most experiments fail. Crypto is still very much an experiment and no one should take it for granted. Uh, importantly, we need to keep fighting for it, building it, improving it, and not assuming that it's all just inevitable. So that's the first point. I think the, the time in which we moved from like a single monolithic blockchain in Bitcoin to a sort of multi-currency, multi-blockchain approach. Where now we have many blockchains, 
Uh, many of these blockchains look very different from each other. You know, like the Ethereum blockchain works completely differently than, than Bitcoin's does. This adds to the decentralization, which was fundamental to Bitcoin in the first place. And so many things which could have stopped Bitcoin potentially, now that there's a diversity in the economic game theory and the technicals, um, structure of these blockchains, I think that risk is greatly reduced. Um, it's not going to be like, even if some technical problem wipes out a blockchain, uh, it doesn't really matter because we have many that are built in different ways. And so of course the largest threat remains government. Uh, they probably cannot kill this stuff, but they could make life miserable for people who try to use it. Um, they can certainly thwart adoption and make it slower. Certain parts of the world might see much slower or no adoption than others. Um, but ultimately I think because fiat currencies themselves fall apart inevitably, uh, through the debasement of currency, um, because that is going to happen with all fiat currencies on shorter or faster timelines, there's now an alternative system, which is just cryptocurrency. And so and to some degree, we can just kind of keep building and wait for that to happen because this is now the alternative to the fiat financial system. Everyone should stay vigilant. Uh, no one should take it for granted, but, um, I mean, it's working and it's gotten, it's far more likely to, to work now than it was five or 10 years ago. We are a diverse audience here. We have crypto people and Bitcoiners. To what extent, if at all, do you agree with Balaji Srinivasan? who is saying that now that the banking crisis is going on, we're all maxis. Now we have to make sure that Bitcoin is the asset that people put their wealth in. I think he's using it a little um, uncautiously. Maximalism generally is the idea that uh, Bitcoin and only Bitcoin is, is the technology that we should care about, that no other blockchains, no other cryptocurrencies have any use whatsoever. And everyone's attention should only be on Bitcoin. I think that's complete nonsense. Uh, I think what he's trying to get at really though, is not that argument. It's that, um, this sort of base decentralized money for the world is utterly important. And a banking crisis makes that even more apparent. Uh, that's obviously true. And I think to the degree that he is trying to say that everyone in the cryptocurrency industry should advocate at minimum Bitcoin, um, I think is also reasonable because Bitcoin is, I would say the world's best chance for decentralized base money. Everything else, every other cryptocurrency is more experimental, um, generally more complicated, newer, less tried, less tested. And um, if there's one, one asset everyone should be rallying around, certainly Bitcoin is that one. Uh, I just don't think it should ever be at the exclusion of others. You know, I'm a huge fan of Ethereum. I'm a huge fan of privacy coins, for example. I'm a huge fan of stable coins because they provide huge economic value to many people or may or a really good bridge into the cryptocurrency world. So, um, yeah, I wish Balaji would be a little more careful in his use of that term, but, uh, I think the, the desire and the impulse for everyone to be supporting sort of this base decentralized money, is a good one. I want to talk a bit more about the strategy and ethics, how to separate state and money. Can you talk a bit about shapeshift and your shift from an actual entity to become a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. What did that entail for you? How does it affect you or protect you now compared to the setup you had before? Yeah, it was quite a journey. So uh, Shapeshift started in 2014 as a, a non-custodial exchange. 
we were still a centralized company, but we were non-custodial, which meant that people could trade, you know, Bitcoin for other assets, other digital assets. And um, there was no user account where a user was holding funds with us. It was created sort of in response to Mt. Gox to basically provide an alternative, which didn't have an intermediary in which people didn't trust. Um, so that model works great. Uh, Shapeshift grew over those years. And one of the principles that I thought was important was to, uh, you know, protect users, which also meant to protect their privacy. So we did not implement KYC whatsoever. Uh, we did not spy on our users. Uh, we let them be private. Governments obviously did not like this. And when we got big enough, you know, into 2017 and 2018, um, we ran into a whole bunch of hell with essentially every regulator in the U.S. and many in other jurisdictions around the world. Um, ultimately, we were forced into implementing KYC and spying on our users and, you know, like siphoning data back to various government agencies, which I found to be morally reprehensible. Uh, our customers obviously hated it. Um, I hated it. Our employees hated it. Uh, but the regulators loved it. And, uh, that was not something that I wanted to keep building, but for a couple of years, I didn't really know what to do. You know, like if we just shut shapeshift down, then people wouldn't have that non-custodial, um, exchange and more of them would end up in centralized intermediaries, which were also spying on them, but also had all the risks of being a, um, a deposit base. But thankfully this stuff is uh, full of innovation and we saw Uniswap come out. And we saw how, um, they had built an exchange that was decentralized truly. Unfortunately, Uniswap only worked for Ethereum based assets, ERC 20 tokens. You couldn't swap Bitcoin, for example, through Uniswap, um, still can't. Um, but we came across, uh, another project called Thorchain, which allowed people to swap across chains for the first time ever. And so since you could swap across chains and we could integrate things like Uniswap as well. We destroyed the entire backend of Shapeshift as an exchange, and we just integrated decentralized protocols into our interface. The, then we decentralized ourselves. And um, what that meant was dismantling and destroying the whole corporate entity, uh, which was this big, you know, sophisticated set of entities we had created in Switzerland and the UK and everywhere. Um, we ended up firing all of our employees, uh, including myself. We got rid of our office. We got rid of our bank accounts. And we let all of our, you know, SaaS contracts fire and we let the company, the corporate company for, for all intents and purposes, um, go away, dissolve, shut down the product, you know, the, the web app we open sourced and, um, started hosting it in various decentralized, um, mechanisms. And we created a token called the Fox token. And that token is what governs that interface. So all decisions for what shapeshift as a product is, uh, and we'll do in the future, come down to that token. And we gave that token out to all of our past users, all of our employees, all of our shareholders. Um, we did the, I think at that time it was the largest airdrop in history, which was up to over a million different, um, addresses. And at that point, the product and the corporation were, were separate. The corporation was dissolving and no longer controlled the product. Uh, and the product could do whatever it wanted, uh, untethered to any specific jurisdiction in the world. And, and that's been very cool to see. So it's run by the community now. Um, I'm involved, but I don't run it. And, uh, it's been, been amazing. You know, I, I definitely am not one of those people that thinks every organization should be a DAO, 
uh, but some should. And in our case, it made a lot of sense. What did that teach you about pushing the frontiers and being kind of a crypto purist versus playing by the official rules or the things that the regulators want you to do? So we all know that these rules aren't made by a god, but the people with interests. But lots of us, we have different, we're on the different sides of the spectrum in terms of being crypto purists versus playing by the official rules. So for some of the institutions we're building, we're doing KYC, IML, because otherwise we're losing connections to all sorts of financial intermediaries that are unfortunately still necessary. So what did that teach you about sort of going for these innovative alternative crypto rails versus being pragmatic about playing by certain rules? I think it's important for everyone to know why they're doing what they're doing. So certainly some people that run companies are purely there to like build a company and make money. You know, maybe most people are like that. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I was not building shapeshift purely for that, right? Like I'm definitely a capitalist and I was definitely trying to make money and build a big company. But always on the basis of it aligning with my principles and my virtues and the the whole ethos of cryptocurrency and decentralization generally. So it was really like, as I got pulled further and further away from my ability to live the principles that I cared about, uh, that's when I had to get increasingly creative. So I guess my only advice is simply be very clear with yourself about what you're building and why, and make sure that you're in alignment with your own virtues. Uh, if you get pulled away from those, it doesn't matter how successful, quote unquote, you are. Um, you will feel like something's wrong. Um, so just be very true to yourself in that regard. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurs that are starting out and are confronted with that question? Do something that's less risky, mainstream entities, or sort of go into frontier territory, DAOs and Web3, sort of the more crypto purism, where the cost of legal mistakes could be high? Yeah, again, it depends on your goals and how how radical you are, but it also depends largely on if you're interacting with the physical world. So things that are interacting with the physical world, meaning like physical services, anything related to, you know, real estate or the normal meat space world is very hard and maybe impossible to put into some kind of DAO structure. I don't know that it can be done, but those things which are purely digital uh, and finance is a great example of this. Those things which are purely digital can uh, theoretically be built entirely in a decentralized way. Of course, this was totally impossible before blockchains, but is now totally possible. So if you're building something purely digital and you predict that you'll have various frictions with, um, with regulators or jurisdictions around the world, um, or you just want the kind of dynamism and free flow of talent and capital that a DAO can support, but a corporation can't, uh, then yeah, try to, try to be decentralized from, from the start. I think there's a, people kind of get tricked into this idea that you can have a, like a DAO wrapper, like a legal wrapper for a DAO, um, where you'll have a DAO, but then the DAO is registered as an LLC somewhere. In, in fact, Wyoming actually like made a law where a DAO can register as an LC, LLC. Um, I think that's very strange. I don't think it's helpful. I think it 
the moment you are an entity, you're not a DAO. Like these are oil and water kind of things. You can't be both. Um, the entire purpose of a DAO is that there's not any locus of control. There's not any locus of jurisdiction. And, and when you have an entity, you have both of those things. So if, if anyone talks to a lawyer, a lawyer will always say like the DAO should be registered to limit your liability, but you have to understand lawyers don't understand this new realm at all. Like the decentralized realm is a new space, a new design space for people. And many old rules don't apply. Many old concepts don't make sense. And the experts of the old world are completely alien to the new one. So you have to forgive them for, you know, trying to bring the old world structures into the new. Some of them make sense, but some don't. And just realize that you're going to go out into the frontier and uh, there aren't experts in the frontier and you have to be comfortable with that. Great. So I'm taking questions by the audience now. Just write them in the Telegram chat. Can you talk a bit more about your critique of DAO legal wrappers, right? Because there's multiple restrictions right now competing to make the right DAO laws, including Prosper. It's ours. We, we do it here, right? So we're thinking what's the right approach to do it. So what's your case against legal wrappers in more depth? And if you have no legal wrapper, no jurisdiction, how does it actually work when you run a DAO? Yeah, great question. So... I've, I've sort of had to become like a, a lawyer myself in navigating these issues with shapeshift. And one of the tenets that is important is that you can only get in trouble if you're doing something illegal. And that sounds obvious at first, but it's actually really important. Um, when someone is worried about regulators or various government agencies, if you're not doing anything that violates their rules, they can't really get you. They can try to get you, but they will fail because you haven't done anything against the law. And what that means in a DAO structure is that each participant of a DAO should be very careful that they, as an individual, are not doing anything illegal. Um, and as long as all, each individual person within a DAO is not doing anything illegal in the jurisdiction that they're in, then there's no material legal risk. Um, so let's use a hypothetical example where there are two people, there's a DAO that it consists of two people and each of those people are in a different country, country A and country B. And let's say that like writing code is illegal in country A, but not in country B. Certainly the person in country B should be the DAO member writing code, right? That person's now not doing anything illegal. The person in country A can do any other task that the DAO needs. Maybe they do marketing and maybe marketing is not illegal in their country. So at this point, there's no corporate structure. And even though there are rules in the jurisdictions, neither party is violating neither rule, right? So you, because you have that flexibility, the, the structure of the individuals participating can adapt to it. In the same example, if you have an entity, that entity now is where all locus of control goes and either country that you set that entity in has to follow all the rules of that country. So you can't be nearly as flexible in who's doing, who's doing what. So that's just kind of a simple way to, to frame it. Hopefully that was somewhat clear, but, um, as long as every person involved in a DAO is looking at their own actions and making sure they're not doing anything illegal, then by definition, there's nothing illegal going on. 
And like in Shapeshift's case, the, the activity which was regulated in our case was being a financial intermediary. So um, when a user would send in Bitcoin, for example, to buy ETH, we'd receive the Bitcoin and then we'd send them ETH. So even though it was non-custodial, we were an intermediary in that flow and financial intermediaries are heavily regulated in essentially all jurisdictions. When we integrated DEXs, we removed ourselves from that regulated activity. Uh, and that meant that Shapeshift was no longer doing regulated activity. The regulated activity was being done by a decentralized smart contract, but a decentralized smart contract is not an intermediary under any current law anywhere in the world. And thus the same activity from a user's perspective now becomes completely legal and fine. Whereas before would, based on our structure, it was problematic. So sorry if that's a little long-winded, but like, those are the kind of questions to look at. Oh, not a problem at all. I'm very interested in that question and even have a follow-up question about that. So you said you had to become like a lawyer yourself to do much of this. Can you talk a bit more about your legal stack? Is it just you? Is it a bunch of lawyers? Do you have some actual entities for some of those things? And can you open source what you do so others can use it as well? In terms of myself, I'm not leading Shapeshift anymore, right? So, um my legal stack is not really relevant. Um, you know, I have my own lawyers that I work with on various things, but they're not related to shapeshift the decentralized autonomous organization anymore. One, one thing I do think is reasonable is that any individual who's involved with a DAO who is worried about their own risk can themselves create an LLC for themselves because you as an individual are already not decentralized and you never will be. So there's no. You haven't harmed your decentralization by creating an LLC above you. That makes sense. But if a DAO creates an LLC above it, it has restrained itself and has uh, diminished some of its decentralization. Um, so again, each person needs to make these decisions for themselves based on their own jurisdiction and, and risk tolerance. And it's not really something I can generalize. What about your, on, on a personal level or what? stack can you recommend for citizenship, residency, banking, going to special jurisdictions and things like that? I think the, the greatest degree of sovereignty that anyone can achieve is extricating their financial power out of banking and into crypto. If you do that, then you can always control economic resources and everything else becomes a little less important. So, you know, like regardless of where your citizenship is or your residency or anything. If you own in self-custody uh, crypto assets, you are the only one in the world that can control those things. And there's no one in the world that can stop you from buying something. Like that's incredibly powerful. If you need to change locations, you first need to have money and that money needs to be under your control. This doesn't mean you need to become bankless. Like it's okay to have bank accounts. Just realize that bank accounts are always at the permission of someone else. And you need to have a significant portion of your assets under your own control. Probably a lot of your guests there are already, have already done that. Um, and then in terms of like citizenships, you know, for me, unfortunately, I'm an American citizen. And so to change my situation at all, I'd have to renounce citizenship in the United States, in which case, you know, half my assets would get stolen from me because I renounced. Most people in other countries don't have this issue where they are taxed by their parent country if they don't live there anymore. This is unique to America. Um, but really, if you're trying to optimize things on the like jurisdictional spectrum, 
you're never going to have as much effect as if you optimize things in the economic spectrum. And you can do that simply by owning your own crypto and understanding what self-custody means and how to do that responsibly. Also, crypto is now, is becoming more than money, right? It can be used to tokenize assets, underpin or verify like unique identifiers for digital art, identity proofs and things like that. Also, we've been talking for a while about tokenizing like real world assets, real estate and things like that. I just came from a conference with Vitalik Buterin, who said the main thing that we're missing right now in crypto is that it's too self-referential, too much about financial products and yield farming and things like that. So what's the missing link to bring crypto innovation to change the real world? Yeah, fair question. Um... I don't think we need to do that. Like the purely changing how money and finance work is a huge ambition, like a fundamental change in how human society organizes and interacts with each other. It doesn't need to be bigger than that for it to be worth pursuit. However, blockchains do seem to be useful for things beyond just money. And so I think it's really cool that people are experimenting with all this stuff. I think it's a, I'm not really that into NFTs, but I think it's amazing that artists now have this way of monetizing art. You know, like how tragic is it that all these creators around the world for centuries, you know, the stereotype is that artists are generally poor. All but the very, 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 very best recognized ones um, have a really hard time making money. And now there, now there's this way of making uh, digital art that is tokenized. I think that's very cool. So I love seeing the innovation. Um, I don't think anyone should say like blockchains can't do X, Y, and Z. Uh, it's too early to say that. And I would rather just everyone's trying things and most, most projects will fail and that's fine. You know, that's the nature of a frontier, but, um, you know, those who care about it for the purpose of money, shouldn't feel bad that like they might just care about the money side. That's a huge, if we solve that for the world, um, all of this was worth it. What do you see as lacking right now when it comes to innovation in the crypto and financial space? something that we're not doing enough of or talking enough about. It sounds cliche, you know, but like there's just still not enough cultural pressure into self-custody. I think most people that have been in the industry for a little while, meaning one or two years or maybe one cycle, um, understand self-custody and use it to some degree. But new people, when they get involved, generally flow into um, the centralized exchanges. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. It's just that there needs to be more cultural gravity getting them out of that stage and into the more uh, appropriate ability to rely on themselves and how to do that safely. There's certainly some of this in the industry. It's not like a blind spot, but um, I just want to reemphasize that like everyone who cares about this stuff should continually help and teach people about self-custody. It's not that hard. It's a little hard. But riding a bike is a little hard. Driving a car is a little hard. And we learn these things because we're responsible adults, right? So as a culture, we need to build that into, uh, into the cryptocurrency industry and maintain it. The Bitcoin Education Center here in Prospera would be very happy to hear that. They do a lot of seminars on the island and showing local people and teaching them through like children's books in local languages about Bitcoin. Beautiful. I have a couple of questions from the audience. Can you talk a bit about Tornado Cash and the implications that it had on the industry? Yeah, so that was a big deal. So uh, for those who don't know, Tornado Cash was a set of smart contracts on Ethereum, uh, basically designed to mix 
the funds that go into it such that the input and output of the funds are obscured. The charitable interpretation of that is anyone who cares about privacy and their finances can use this tool to get more privacy. The cynical interpretation is that such a tool is only used by money launderers, right? And it was sanctioned by OSAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is a branch of the U.S. Treasury involved in preventing, you know, terrorist financing and money laundering, that kind of thing. Um, it was unique because, so OFAC has this list, you know, called the sanctions list. And this list is people, entire nations and companies. And if they're on this list, it's illegal for Americans to do business with them. This is already like a highly problematic ethically, because for example, the entire nation of Iran, it's illegal for any American to do business with people in Iran, right? 99% of Iranians are good people. Why is it illegal for me to do business with someone there? Totally preposterous. Um, but OFAC added the Tornado Cash smart contracts to its list. This is interesting because it's the first time that like a non-person or group of people um, has ever been added. And what it means is that like even a, you know, a researcher at MIT who's trying to uh, study these contracts academically to understand the degree to which fund obfuscation is, is true or not, just like from a research perspective, um, they would be violating sanctions just by interacting with this thing. It has already been challenged legally. I think Boeing Center, if I'm not mistaken, is suing uh, about this. And um, I expect it to be a big, big legal topic. I think importantly, regardless of the fact that it was sanctioned, it still operates, right? These smart contracts don't care about scary letters from government agents. I think that's incredibly cool that a piece of code can exist in a plane which nobody, doesn't matter how powerful you are, can, can pervert or stop or censor. So I think that's a beautiful illustration of the power of this technology. And uh, I'm glad that there are people that build these systems. Um, the person who got in trouble for Terminator Cash, I think one person is, is in jail and has been for months. Uh, he hasn't been charged with anything. So how that is ethical or legal, I don't know. But um, we will see what the charges actually are, right? Like what, what did he do that is illegal? Writing code that obscures inputs and outputs of cryptocurrency transactions? We, it, it remains to be seen. So it's an open case and people should watch it. There is a bigger point I'd like to ask or give like a framework for the debate about regulation, since that's one of the key topics of this podcast. So in Prospera, we want to move away from regulatory monopoly, right? So regulatory monopoly is done by governments to regulatory pluralism. So it's not only governments that can propose regulations. Another framework is implicit regulations versus explicit regulations. So implicit regulations are by markets, by custom, and just by behavior. And explicit regulation is like written rules, like contracts or law can be smart contracts. People like you and I, we like markets, we like implicit regulations, but there seems to be a market demand for explicit regulations. So it's very typical that market actors want to have a contract. Hey, if I do this, then this happens. And, you know, someone else has oversight or ensuring that bad actors get out of the market seems to have a market value. In what ways do you think about regulations and alternatives to the current system or how we could innovate 
Great question. So this is kind of like my favorite topic right now, which is, um, there's this sort of myth or idea that everyone involved in cryptocurrency is like a bunch of anarchists that don't like any rules. Um, and it's really easy to attack that line of thinking, right? If you can cast people as those who are, who, who desire no rules, um, the vast majority of people will be against that position. I think what we in the cryptocurrency uh, community need to realize is that we've actually created a far more powerful system for rules and enforcement than the government has. Smart contracts are rules enforcement, right? And they act 100% of the time as written. They are completely objective. They don't care who you are, how influential you are, right? They will execute according to the word and the letter of the smart contract. They are transcendentally more powerful and more law bringing than government regulations are. And I think if we can get this kind of message out there that like, look, we may all disagree on which rules should be around, but we all agree that rules are important in society, right? I'm, I'm a very radical libertarian and I, I'll agree with that statement. Rules are important in society. What are the best ways of creating rules? I think objective, transparent, open source protocols are a really good way of creating rules. We can go into that, but smart contracts do that by default. And uh, I think that's very special and very powerful and we should be promoting that message more often. I want to challenge that point a bit, the code is law point. There's two ways of looking at law or regulation. The one way is it's supposed to steer people, society or businesses towards a certain behavior or way of doing things. But there's another interpretation. Like I had a longer conversation with Tom W. Bell on my podcast talking about common law, which is more like a band-aid. So it doesn't try to steer people towards certain behavior. It just tries to fill the gaps when sort of common sense and custom don't work anymore. And what happens in between, things that fall through the cracks require interpretation and judgment. So is there a case to be made for a polycentric, pluralistic common law that just clarifies what happens when things fall through the cracks, when the smart contracts don't execute as intended, or there were misunderstandings, or someone is accusing someone else of fraud or something like that? I mean, there's kind of a market demand for resolution of conflicts, like an impartial arbitrator or a judge or something like that. I mean, with smart contracts, you don't really need impartial arbitrators because they execute according to code, right? So the problem is only when bugs are written into the code, but the solution to that is obvious, right? You fix the bug. That's what open source software is good at. If there are bugs in the code, then there is no need for arbitration. They act as they are written. And people can use them if they like how they're written. Um, so I'd say it's not the like code is law. It's like code is better than law. Code actually executes perfectly. Well, you could say, I didn't know this was supposed to do that. You sold it or labeled it the wrong way. Isn't there like edge cases that require some sort of interpretation? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in cases of fraud, like when there's a, when there's a victim and someone who's like violated someone's rights. I don't think it's unreasonable for the state to get involved and try to remedy that situation. The problem is that that's like a tiny percentage of what states do. Uh, most of the things they go after people for, they're 
there's no victim. And they just cause a bunch of pain and suffering for a bunch of people without even a, a victim being there. So, it, you know, like, look, if the SEC went after securities fraud, actual fraud, and found the perpetrators and compensated the victims for that fraud, I would, I would applaud them, right? Like, that'd be great. Um, that's not generally what they do. So I wish that was the case, but I'm not going to keep relying on um, government regulators to provide, you know, justice in a world when I see that they've been in charge and they're so bad at providing that justice. What I had in mind was less of a governmental system, but more of a pluralistic private system, right? Where you have private arbitrators or insurance that looks at smart contracts and looks at business risks. And they're deciding, oh, this smart contract is cool. We endorse it. We insure it. And this one, we're not so sure about that. So there can be kind of a bigger ecosystem on top where you don't have to look in depth into each protocol. And that kind of serves as an arbitrator in case, you know, the was this really a bug that led to this mistake? Should you have fixed the bug, right? So bugs happen all the time, right? So there could be... An, that those kind of services that adjudicate when it comes to these edge cases. Yeah. And that kind of experimentation I'd love to see happening. I mean, this is, this is why I love seeing projects like Prospera experiments in governance, I think is something that is very noble and, and more of it should be done. Um, and smart contracts can do a lot of stuff, but they can't do everything, right? There's a whole meat space world that, uh, smart contracts can't touch. And I don't know that they ever will be able to. So. I just, I would like to see more of that kind of experimentation and for it to be more market-based and dynamic rather than, you know, huge nations of hundreds of millions of people, you know, led by democratic systems, which don't really serve anyone very well. So knowing you have this hard stop in seven minutes, I'd like to ask you one last question and you can take a bit longer to answer it. And my question is twofold. The first one is what makes you worried? What should be be aware of to succeed as a movement, a risk we should watch out for and mitigate against? And then B, what makes you optimistic and excited? What is inspiring you? Um, I think what scares me is that as fiat currencies fall apart, which I see as inevitable, you know, I don't know if it's two years from now or 20, but like it's not a hundred. Um, as that falls apart, the world is going to get very dark and scary and a lot of suffering is going to happen. Um, really bad, horrible suffering because a whole economic system that has been built up on sand is falling apart. And I'm very proud that, that this community, the cryptocurrency world is building alternatives to much of that system, but there are very strong, powerful vested interests in that system. And many of those people who truly believe that what they've built is better. So I'm not assuming they're evil people. I'm just assuming that they see the world differently. And I think, um, we will get into a phase where the vilification of cryptocurrency is really intense. Uh, we are, we all see it, right. Um, but I think it's going to get increasingly intense as fiat currencies fall apart and there will come up, there will come a time when people that care about this stuff have to make decisions where they probably will need to violate laws, right? Probably bad laws will be created and we will all have decisions to make on which laws we end up following and which ones we don't. Um, you know, a good example is like back in 1933 when gold was outlawed, right? It was illegal for Americans to own gold. Um, you know, who among you would have surrendered your gold just because the government told you to do that? Uh, 
I certainly wouldn't. And we may get into a situation where um, people need to make those kind of decisions with cryptocurrency, and that's going to be very messy and and painful. So that's that's what scares me to paint a bleak picture. Uh, the optimistic picture is that, like, we figured out how to build a coordination system for strangers, and to um, to abstract the requirement of trusting strangers to smart contracts, which can be read and proved mathematically. This is like a radical technological innovation for human society on par with like this steam engine and the internet and electricity. It's like that, that scale of effect. And so all of humanity can rejoice about that. It will bring tremendous efficiency. It will bring greater fairness. It will bring, um, greater honesty and material prosperity. So, um, we should all be very excited about that and enjoy it and be glad that we're living in the exciting times. Great. You have a bit of a background on Prosper already. Anything that you'd like to see us doing here or generally in the space of new cities and special jurisdictions that you see lacking? I just want to congratulate you guys for maybe being the furthest along. Like you're there in an actual physical building. Um, this, this, is, this is better than, uh, you know, a thousand ideas that have come and gone. Um, you guys are actually building it. Uh, and so I always love seeing the results of good ideas rather than just the good ideas themselves. So really applaud it. Um, I'm excited to come visit Prospera later this year and uh, glad to see you all down there. So yeah, just keep, keep building, I would say. Yeah, like I was saying before, this is kind of what inspires me. It's not theory anymore. There's Prospera, there's Sudamorazan. There are other charter cities and special jurisdictions. There is the meme of network states now. And there are some real projects going on with physical jurisdiction and buildings. Last week, we were in Montenegro. We had the first conference that was bringing the idea of new cities, of private cities and of network states together and showing this is critical mass. This is a movement now. We have some real projects and we can involve builders of all sorts. We have funding and we can make this a bigger trend and a bigger thing that can eventually effectuate all of humanity. And it's the legal innovation combined with crypto in the financial space that is paving the way for a new wave of technological progress. So Eric, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your clear thinking, your ethics, your principle with us that can guide us on this path to navigate the difficult waters that we're in to bring what's happened in the crypto space and combine it with the real world to build a freer world that can elevate humanity to levels previously unseen before. Any final words before we part? No, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to chat with you all. Thanks for listening and uh, enjoy a, a beautiful day down there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.